Anton Hellman for the EM Cases podcast here. To all of you brave and dedicated EM providers listening, I sincerely hope that you're managing well in this COVID crisis. Whether you're struggling with PPE shortages or being bombarded with really sick COVID patients, having to share ventilators, or seeing low volumes of patients currently but anxiously waiting for the oncoming storm, I want you to remember that we are all in this together and that the incredible strength, resilience, and camaraderie of the global EM community will see us through. If you're having trouble, please reach out to your supportive colleagues, or to me personally for that matter. I can be reached just about any time at anton at emergencymedicinecases.com. All right, now on to managing surge capacity in the COVID era. No matter where you practice emergency medicine, there will be capacity problems. Even if we flatten the COVID-19 curve, there'll be a huge load on the systems that exceed our capacity. So I've invited someone who you may remember from a previous podcast on disaster medicine that we released in 2017, Dr. Daniel Kolek. He is an expert in disaster preparedness. Uh, Dr. Kolek, thank you so much for agreeing to be on EM Cases to talk about surge capacity when it comes to COVID-19. Dr. Kolek, can you just remind our listeners about who you are and your professional background? Sure. Uh, I am an emergency physician currently working in Burlington, Ontario. Uh, I'm the chair of the CAPE Disaster Committee and executive director of the Center for Excellence in Emergency Preparedness. Fantastic. Okay, so before we dive into how to increase capacity in these difficult times, we first need to define what surge capacity is. So, Dr. Kolek, what is surge capacity? In order to understand surge capacity, you have to remember what the definition of a disaster is in a healthcare context. In a healthcare context, a disaster is anything where the need that's being put on the system outstrips your ability to deliver. So if I can handle 100 patients and I now have to treat 150, that's a disaster. Surge capacity is the ability to increase my uh, flow through and my ability to house patients and treat patients above what is considered my standard 100%. All right, so now that we have a a sense of what surge capacity means, let's discuss how folks out there who are struggling to keep up can increase their capacity. Based on some of the work we did around the overcrowding episode that we did about a, a year ago or so, I understand there's essentially four ways to increase capacity in these situations. The first one being decreasing demand. The second is establishing alternate care facilities. The third is minimizing resource consumption by admitted patients. And the fourth is expanding bed capacity. So let's go through these one at a time. So first there's decreasing demand. How do you decrease demand to increase surge capacity in a pandemic like COVID-19? The first thing we need to do is to divert patients away. Uh, That can be done in a few ways. Public messaging to advise patients not to present if they don't need to. Patients who do present to emergency departments need to be diverted to alternate facilities, which of course have to be established in the community to do that. The other part of decreasing demand is decreasing 
the patients who are currently in the system. So patients who are awaiting discharge uh, for alternate level of care need to be moved out to any facility that can house the patients. The family's choice sometimes that they want their loved one to go to a nursing home near their home may not be an option right now when we have to get them out of the hospital. In Israel, where all hospitals are mandated to have a 20% surge capacity, they have a bed inventory at the central command of all the general hospitals, the specialty hospitals, psychiatric, geriatric, rehab facilities, and nursing homes. So they know where there are beds in the community, and they will move patients out. Another part of decreasing demand is deferring non-essential care. So elective operating rooms, clinics for things that are deferrable. And the last part is delivery of care in a non-traditional way, such as video consultation. Can we do things by remote control that keeps the patient away from the facility? So you mentioned at the top of that bit that... We need to tell patients when it's appropriate to come to the emergency department. So at this point in the pandemic, what would you suggest that emergency physicians tell patients who do come to the emergency department to kind of spread the word of what is an appropriate time for them to come to the emergency department? First and foremost, do not come to the emergency department for COVID screening, particularly if you're asymptomatic. If you're sick with anything that you think requires emergency care, then that's what we're there for. But if you're sitting at home and you're wondering, have I been exposed, don't come to us. Contact public health. It'll save you being exposed to other sick people, and it will clear the way for people who need the services. The second thing is, if this is a service that you can receive from your family doctor, such as something that's been going on for quite a while, a chronic condition, something that you don't think needs immediate life-saving intervention, then see your family doctor or a walk-in clinic. In this era, might actually put you at risk and certainly will overload the system. All right. So that's a little bit about how to decrease demand the next of the four ways that we can increase capacity is to establish alternate care facilities. And you talked about this a little bit. Can you go into a little bit more detail about how one might actually establish alternate care facilities and how, how it would work? Sure. Two kinds of facilities you want to think about. One is out of hospital and one is in hospital. I think we're going to come back to the in-hospital part later when we talk about expanding bed capacity. But for the out-of-hospital part, think about where people can be housed and care can be delivered, but that's not in a hospital. For example, again, going to Israel because they are the masters of this, they've taken over hotels and are repurposing them as COVID hospitals for patients that don't need intensive care. We're going to possibly need to turn our acute care hospitals into COVID ICU hospitals. And for those patients who require services that don't need that level of care, a hotel that has been repurposed might be a perfect venue. 
Other options are if you're in a province with mothballed hospitals, uh, you might want to reopen them, as I gather they're doing in Alberta. Field hospitals can be established by the military. Other dormitories or public places can be repurposed as a care facility. Got it. All right. So we've talked a little bit then about decreasing demand, establishing alternate care facilities. The next of the four ways to increase capacity is minimizing resource consumption by admitted patients. How does that all work? The key concept here is delivering the care that the person needs where they need it, but not more or less. If you do not need to be in an isolation room, for example, you shouldn't minimize the care that's delivered to you, put you somewhere else, and bring somebody else into that room. The other thing is, at one point, we're going to have some uh, degradation of the standard of care. By definition, as we said, a disaster is where the need outstrips what we can deliver. And if we're going to deliver care to a large number of people, it may not match up to the standard of care we would deliver now to each and every individual. There are some things that we do in a disaster we would not do in a usual course of events. The extreme example of that is, for example, patients who are triaged in a mass casualty event as expectant in that we're not going to expect them to survive, we will not resuscitate them. And we will maintain our resuscitation for those patients who might survive. That's something that we would never do if we were faced just with the individual patient. That is, of course, the extreme example, not where we are right now. But in our context, Patients who might expect to have intubation, we may find that we're going to be delivering non-invasive ventilation to these people, which is what we're seeing in Italy now. Just to clarify that, so in Italy, they're actually using CPAP rather than intubating a patient. My understanding was that CPAP should be sort of banned from emergency departments and ICUs during this COVID outbreak uh, because... It's just spreading the virus through the room and increasing the chance that everyone in the room will get infected. Precisely. In the normal course of events, we would not use non-invasive ventilation for a patient with COVID. The concern is that it would aerosolize the virus and pose an increasing infection risk. This is not a standard course of events. We cannot intubate everybody. And Jeff Frank is reporting from Italy that they have created specific dedicated areas where they're having patients on CPAP. These are separate rooms. The staff in there are, were, are wearing full PPE. And that's how they avoid getting everybody ventilated because they don't have enough ventilators. And in fact, they're reporting that if you start this early, they have better results. Interesting. And now for a word from our sponsor, Metricade, the experts on scheduling systems. Metricade would like to let you know that they are helping EDs, urgent care clinics, and other provider groups during the COVID-19 pandemic. They've been helping their existing customers set up additional call schedules and screening clinics. 
They're also working on setting up province-wide virtual walk-in clinics, which will go live on March 30th. And they're doing this for free during the outbreak. Metricade's giving these organizations access to their web-based tool, but more importantly, they're doing all the work building and managing these schedules, helping to build capacity and resilience in our system, doing what they do best. If you're struggling with the logistics of adding coverage to your existing schedule, or you're setting up completely new schedules for screening or treatment, let them help you out. They can get a new schedule up and running in a matter of days, leaving you to take care of other matters. Metricade really wants to help you out during this crisis. Let them give you a hand. Check out metricade.com slash emcases and get in touch with them today. So again, in our various methods to increase capacity, we've talked about decreasing demand. We've talked about establishing alternate care facilities. And we just finished talking about minimizing resource consumption by admitted patients. The last and fourth one is expanding bed capacity. Um, And you alluded to this a little bit earlier. How do you expand bed capacity during this COVID outbreak? The key part of this is establishing treatment areas in unconventional locations. And when you think of establishing treatment areas, you also have to think about the staffing and equipment of that. Again, I'm going to pull on an example in Israel. What they had as a plan in some hospitals is that certain wards have hallways that are dedicated to them. And if they need to add beds, they will take their most stable patients from that ward. A small portion of the staff will go with them, and those patients are relocated to a hallway, clearing space on the ward. Now, in some of these hospitals, they have already pre-plumbed in the hallway oxygen and so on, but we can function with oxygen uh, in tanks, and we can manage to find power in the hallways if we need it. But the idea is to move the patients into areas that are not usually treatment areas. You want to move your most stable and your most known patients, the ones about which you have the most information, so that you can anticipate what their needs are going to be and that they're not going to rapidly decompensate. In terms of areas where you can put people cafeterias, auditoria, hallways, entrance lobbies, and so on. Any place that has the room and that you can staff and provide a modicum of privacy would be uh, one way to expand the physical beds. Now, when you go up in beds, you're going to need to go up in staff probably not maintaining the same staff ratio you have now, but you need to look at expanding your staff. And part of that will be looking for trainees who might be at a level of training where they can already function to some degree independently or under minimum supervision. Members of allied healthcare, physiotherapists, uh, dentists, who, by the way know how to sedate and how to ventilate. Retired physicians, you need to find ways to cross-license across jurisdictional barriers because you may find that the load is not equally spread and that means that you may have more resources in one area than another and you want people to be able to flow. The last part is 
protocolizing as much as possible. In other words, if you don't need someone physically at the bedside to make a decision, but you can have this as a preset order, then do that. It'll save your human resources for other things. This classic example of that that we do every day is the delegated acts that nurses can do at triage in the emergency department. So if you know that the person's going to need an x-ray when they come to triage, based on preset criteria, the nurse just orders that. And that'll make your staff more effective and you can spread them over a larger patient load. Excellent. You've talked about space considerations in the hospital. I want to talk a little bit more about space considerations in the emergency department. So one thing I've seen in this COVID pandemic is to split the ED into two distinct physical spaces, the sort of respiratory illness space and then the everything else space. I've also seen specific areas just for COVID screening. How do you think we should best sort of partition our ED into specific care spaces and what pitfalls of these so-called alternate care spaces are there? In the ED, if we pull on the Italian experience, we need to divide our departments into clean and dirty. And the term dirty is not pejorative, it's just practical. Patients who have no COVID symptomatology, no COVID risks of significance, and are therefore a totally unrelated problem, such as a fractured femur, should be in the clean area and they can have staff working with them who are dedicated to the clean area. Separate from that, you can have a so-called dirty area, which is any patient who presents with either confirmed or risk of COVID or other respiratory symptoms because we can't wait to screen everybody. If they come in and they're high enough risk, they should be in a separate area. So that's the clean and dirty. Similar to in decontamination from something chemical, you'd have a hot zone and a cold zone, and you really don't want traffic between them. Now, you talked about the risks of non-conventional treatment areas, and we might find ourselves expanding our emergency department where we have an outreach area, which is the clean part, but it's not a place we're used to working in and maybe not staff that are used to working in those alternate care spaces. There are a few issues there. First of all, practically speaking, we don't know where things are. We don't necessarily have everything we're used to having, which puts a strain on us both cognitively and physically running around. In our usual care areas, we have built-in safety measures like central monitors or alarms. They may not be there in the alternate care areas, so we may have to cognitively force ourselves to do safety checks that would otherwise be automatic in our usual care areas. We may find ourselves working with staff that we don't know and who are doing tasks they're not used to. Communication becomes important, and sometimes, even in moments of stress, we have to actually slow ourselves down. I teach staff and residents that the first thing you do in a crisis is take your own pulse. Slow down, think for a second, you'll do okay if you don't rush. Those would be the key things that I would think of for alternate care spaces.
Fantastic. I want to talk a little bit about managing degradation, and that'll become apparent very soon uh, when you give us your brilliant answer. (laughs) We will almost certainly have limited resources for our non-COVID patients, one example being ventilators. How do you suggest we strategize when it comes to limited resources for all of our patients? There are two parts to that. Part number one is the practical, and that is we know what the clinical scenario is likely going to be. We know what our resources are. Prepare a care path ahead of time that will divert patients into alternate treatments if you think they can tolerate that and that'll work, such as, for example, the CPAP, so as to maintain those resources for the sickest patients, recognizing that this is not the usual standard of care. The other thing you need to do is you need to document this because we're going to understandably be wary of doing things that are not what we're used to. And if we see it documented, that adds a layer of comfort and a layer of protection because Everyone is going to think about what happens when after the illness is over and the crisis is over and the inevitable, because of human nature, wave of recrimination starts coming by. We want to be able to say, yes, we didn't do what is the usual standard of care, but these were unusual circumstances. This was the plan. It was documented ahead of time. Uh, So we all understood that this is the way we're going to be doing things. And that involves also some ethical decision-making that needs to happen ahead of time so that we don't have to do things on the fly. Finally, I think that while we didn't mention this, it's happening and we need to keep doing it. It's taking care of our colleagues and of ourselves. This is going to be exhausting And we've got a tough job to begin with. And a lot of times we sort of take for granted that this is what we do. But this is not a lot of times. This is a stressful environment. And our mental health is not just us being weak when we feel the need. We need to take care of ourselves because it's human nature for us to feel the stress. And because if we take care of ourselves, we can take care of others. All right, Dr. Kolek, there were so many great, insightful, interesting, and practical points you made there. Before we go, just any other advice for emergency providers who are working on planning capacity right now during the COVID-19 pandemic? It's March 19th, 2020 right now. Things are going to change, but what advice do you have for people who are planning capacity right now? If you're involved in planning, there are a lot of resources that are being made available to the point that it's a bit of information overload and it might be like drinking from a fire hose. If you know who you're going to be working with, for example, certain provincial authorities, make sure you know what their guidelines are. Decide ahead of time who are the resources you're going to be listening to. And then if other stuff crosses your desk, fine, but focus on those. Otherwise, you are going to be inundated with all kinds of advice, both good and less good. 
So that'll make it easier for you to process the information. There are two other resources that people might want to go to. The Center for Excellence in Emergency Preparedness, which is www.ceep.ca, has a website and a Twitter feed. We are careful not to flood with a whole load of information, just things that we feel are relevant. And the other option is firstreceivers.ca. Firstreceivers is one word. You have to subscribe to that. And we are sending out updates roughly every two days with the most current resources and with practical advice, flow sheets, uh, tools used in hospitals, and so on. Dr. Kolek, Dr. Morris, who you heard in part one of the COVID casts, George Kovacs and Lori Mazurek have all kindly agreed to provide material for weekly updates on COVID in their respective areas of expertise, which we'll have posted on the EM Cases website and will be in the EM Cases newsletter that you can sign up for in the top right-hand corner of the EM Cases homepage. Well, that's about it for part two in this COVID-19 series of podcasts. In part three, which will be released in a couple of days after this one, we have George Kovacs on airway and one of the world's leading experts in PPE, Lori Mazurek. We'll cover how to protect yourselves, your colleagues, your patients, and your families, and run through the resuscitation and airway management of the COVID patient. In part four, we have an epidemiologist from the University of Toronto who's an expert in viral prediction models. Until next time, stay safe, be strong, we're all in this together.